Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Dave Webb. I'm a manager of speaker programming here at the Mandavi Center. And thank you for coming out for the, uh, let's see, where are we? On the seventh uh, event in the forum at the MC series. There's always something going on here at Mandavi Center. As you can see behind us, we have a backdrop for a student play. Uh, about, Hel uh, about Harriet Tubman. Um, this tonight's lecture is entitled Flood, Culture, Loss, and Geology, the Impact of Hurricane Katrina. And these discussions are a series of free events that are set to contextualize the arts at UC Davis. Um, in honor of our special guest, Alan Toussaint's visit to the UC Davis campus, uh, we're going to be focusing on uh, issues in and around Hurricane Katrina. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our uh, moderator, who will in turn introduce our esteemed panelists. Uh, Patricia Turner received her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and has been a faculty member here at UC Davis since 1990. Vice Provost Turner served as Director of the American Studies Program, Director of African and African American Studies, Interim Dean of Humanities, Arts, and Cultural Studies, and Vice Provost of the Undergraduate Studies at UC Davis. She's the author of four books. Uh, Dr. Turner has served as a consulting scholar on several documentary films. And Turner's commentary on issues related to folklore and popular culture is frequently sought by print, radio, and television journalists, including the New York Times, Boston Globe, Fresh Air, and All Things Considered. Please welcome Dr. Turner and our esteemed panelists. Thanks, Dave. Um, I'll begin by introducing my fellow uh, Davis colleague, um, Professor Jeffrey Mount, um, who is a fluvial geomorphologist. Um, studying sedimentology, strata, stra, stratigraphy, 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 and basin analysis. He's known um, um, as much um, both on campus and elsewhere for his research on natural disasters um, by the nickname Dr. Doom. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's an authority on why the public should take what fluvial geomorphologists tell us about rivers seriously and why we so often don't. It's also my privilege to introduce to you today Alan Toussaint, who will be performing here tomorrow night with Marsha Ball. Mr. Toussaint is a great artist. It's a privilege to introduce him. His career is one that's permeated by productive collaborations, and he keeps current on emerging trends, thus making him the perfect speaker for UC Davis, because we pride ourselves on our collaborative research enterprises and, and keeping current with things. Now, if the world of the internet is correct, um, Mr. Toussaint's mother supported his collaborative and musical instincts by feeding all of his pals as they rehearsed in his Girt Town home in New Orleans. In the 60s, he wrote and produced for R&B artists such as Irma Thomas, Art and Aaron Neville, The Showman, and many others. Many of these you'll find under um, um, the production name of Naomi Neville. In the 70s, he went more towards the direction of funk, working with the meters, Dr. John, Robert Palmer, Palmer Solomon Burke, the band. Um, Boz Skaggs recorded Toussaint's What Do You Want the Girl to Do on Silk Degrees, which is an album that my college roommate about played to death. <laughs> um, the 70s, he began to take center stage more with notable albums from A Whisper to a Scream and Southern Nights, but also working with other artists, again, notably with LaBelle on Lady Marmalade. 
In the 80s and 90s, the hip-hop artists discovered him beginning to sample from his work. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998. One of his more recent collaborations included Elvis Costello. This is post-Hurricane Katrina with The River in Reverse. One of the reasons we're talking to him today is he's been very involved with New Orleans um, in the rebuilding efforts and supporting support for musicians since August 29th, 2005, and he agreed to chat with us all about that today. So it's really wonderful to have Alan Toussaint with us today. Thank you. I'm going to start by talking about hurricanes before Katrina. And I should say that I had some experience with hurricanes before Katrina because I grew up on eastern Long Island. Now, there was a fresh air interview with you on September 4th, 2005. And they said at the end of it that you were in East Hampton, Long Island at the time of that interview. Uh, I grew up in Sag Harbor, which is one village over from East Hampton. And yes. in the late 1930s, 1938 specifically, a horrendous hurricane went through Long Island and through Rhode Island and Connecticut. My parents and aunts and uncles, my husband's parents, not his parents, his grandparents, lived through the hurricane of 1938. And even and as a child and as an adolescent in the 60s and 70s, when you were working with these groups, every time the wind would get fierce or there'd be hurricane warnings, the memories of the hurricane of 38 and how devastating it was really impacted the locals. They continued to talk about it. As a kid, I thought hurricanes were kind of romantic. They were kind of fun. Um, I, I, I liked the excitement of them all, but they terrified my parents and, and grandparents. And I'm wondering if you could talk about hurricanes before Katrina and what your experience of them was in New Orleans. Well, I certainly understand your parents and... Uh... Well, uh, when Katrina came, uh, I thought it would be like all the other hurricanes, because I've been there through all of them. Hurricanes used to be only named after ladies, only women. Uh, it just happened uh, relatively recent in my life that it began to be a cross-gender situation. And uh, I'm not sure who was responsible for changing that, whether men or women. But uh, uh, the earliest hurricane I can remember was one called Audrey which was, I was a, a little boy. And then, of course, there was many others like Betsy, Camille, all of these names, because they would go in uh, uh, alphabetical order. And we, we knew hurricanes quite well. I mean, it raised sand. And uh, I must say, as a kid, I enjoyed hurricanes as well, because they'd come in, they'd, they'd huff and puff, but not really blow your house down. They just... Uh... But... Uh, Everyone knew that you you nail you nail your boards up on your windows, and uh, after the hurricane has passed, the next day or the next evening, you take the boards down, you number them because you'll get another one next year. So you want to know where this board goes. So hurricanes usually was like a bad storm, but nothing, that, of course, anywhere near Katrina. Uh, and in Betsy, I must say that uh, it was the first worst one that I witnessed. Actually, uh, we lost some friends that we knew. A lady and her, her little girl was a very dear friend of our family. 
and they were down in an area uh, near the law nine that's been so popular lately and uh, water was around nine to twelve feet down there and it settled there and uh, many lives were lost in Betsy. The others after that, Camille being uh, maybe the worst one until uh, here, Katrina, uh, was, was many, many years ago as well. Uh, so hurricanes, we, we figured it was a bad storm, but we knew how to handle it, and it would be all right the next day. It just You just clean up the debris, but nothing catastrophic, uh, some of it. Jeff, are you, what, do you have personal experience with hurricanes? <laughs> like probably half the people here, I'm from California. We, hurricanes are something that happen on TV, yes. something in the newspaper, strange things, forgotten about the next day because the media... Unlike Katrina, in this case, the media forgets about it. Usually within a, within a few weeks, they forget about it, and people clean up, and it's all done. But I will tell you, when I did my Ph.D. dissertation, I'm a geologist. I studied hurricanes of the ancient, and I began to understand that what that the, the earth is, is quiet and still, and things don't change for year upon year, and then it all changes in a flash uh, from in, in, in earth time. And I studied how hurricanes actually sculpt the earth and move sediment around and change the planet because of the power of a hurricane. It's like a soldier's life, 98% boredom and 2% terror. And during that terror is when all the work gets done. So that's my experience with hurricanes. I've never been in one. In the days leading up to Katrina, you know, it hit Florida first. It came through. There were some news reports that a hurricane could go into the Gulf. Um, as someone living in New Orleans at the time, what were you thinking in terms of those initial reports that Katrina coming through? Oh, I took them. Uh, I thought they were as serious as, uh, as others thought. However, I had no intention on leaving, having, uh, having met and lived through so many hurricanes. I figure I, I know what this is about. It may be a little, she may be a little fatter than the last <laughs> one, but it'll be all right. But uh, when all of the warnings were coming, uh, people, many people right away, uh, based on uh, previous ones not too long ago, uh, they immediately began to evacuate. But I had no intentions. I just, I had my system down. Uh, however, some friends did encourage me to at least get out of your house and go and check into a hotel. So I checked into the Royal down on Canal Street, Canal and Bourbon, in fact, on the fourth floor, and uh, that's where I would weather the storm. And someone came and got my car uh, and uh, took it to a, a shopping mall on the third level where you park cars, because I, I live in a very a house with a slab right on the ground. So uh, I, I figured, well, I'd check into the hotel and uh, take some videos and do some editing until the next day. Uh, but far as the days, uh, when I heard all of the reports coming and the way they reported it, they were expecting a, a bit more than usual. Mm -hmm. But of course, no one had any way of knowing and expecting what happened because that was more than a hurricane would happen there. Mm -hmm. uh, so the days gone uh, approaching it, that's how I took it. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't take it as uh, anything that I would run away from. Not at all, because I, I just, I'm a diehard for us being in New Orleans, you know. I get homesick at the airport leaving, you know. <laughs> so so I, I don't like to leave New Orleans if I don't have to, you know. You put a gun on me and I'll leave. 
But uh, and that seems to be a common sentiment among New, New Orleanians. Yes, it might be the shrimp po'boys, uh, <laughs> but whatever it is, uh, certainly I uh, had no intention of leaving. Now, Jeff, you were listening to the reports as oh, yeah. a scientist, and you were hearing this, filtering it through your lenses as a geologist. What were you thinking ahead of time? Well, we started thinking about this about August 23rd, and when it jumped over Florida and started moving into the Gulf, and... Once it does that, once a hurricane moves into the Gulf, and this is, this is where you come from, you know that your odds are pretty good. It's going to miss you. And that's why it's, you think most of the time it's going to be bad and we'll clean up and it's going to be okay. But then when it turned, turned north and turned into a Category 5, I can't think of a friend in the whole business who hadn't, wasn't just locked onto that hurricane following at that point because by that time they were predicting a dead hit on New Orleans. And then, of course, it shifted to the right at the last, in the last, last stages. And we all thought you were fine, by the way. When it, as it started yeah. to pull to the right, we thought this is going to be fine because they're not in the part of the hurricane, which is the worst. So as a scientific community, I have close friends in New Orleans, and I thought, wow, they've dodged a bullet. And the days unfolded so differently, I think, than any of us would have expected at that, um, as that came ashore. Um, again, bringing the, bringing the surge around from Lake Pontchartrain and Mr. Go and flooding, knocking over the eye walls in the, in the, in the town. We were all surprised because we thought you'd missed it. That it was just yeah. going to be like you remember it. It didn't work out that way. And even knowing that, it, even if, even if I would have known that it would be a category five, I still wouldn't have left. Really? No. Yeah. Uh, there would, there had to be someone left in town and I would want it to be <laughs> You're one. You're going to be it. <laughs> uh, and if there was one person, it should have been me. Yeah. But, uh, of course, as we know, it was more than a hurricane. Yes. This was a human disaster uh, as much as it was a natural disaster. Yes. And could you see that aspect of it coming, knowing as you might about well, the state of repair of the levees and the Army Corps of Engineers? And well, I, 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 for fear of making our guest very angry with me in the process, as you know, the scientific community had been for years saying that this was just a matter of time. And, and I believe we... We, we all said, well, New Orleans lost the battle of the inevitable, that this was going to happen eventually, and the things we do down there in Mississippi, and the Mississippi Delta, have made matters much worse. That's why we call it a human disaster, because what we did as humans amplified the disaster, and uh, we all knew that this was coming, but the question was whether it would be this one or not. Um, and then again, as I say, at the as it unfolded, we thought, oh, this is great, New Orleans is going to dodge the bullet, and it didn't work out that way. What was the actual storm like in the hotel? Not much. Uh, the hotel was uh, quite fortified. Um, in fact, you would have to make an effort to know what was going on outside, because it was mostly through the evening and into the night, uh, because I recall the next morning I was going out and looking but uh, but far as that night, we could hear the howling of the wind and and uh, that a very familiar sound to mm-hmm. us. But it didn't. Uh, it gave no indication that it would be anything near what it was. I figured it would blow some signs around. Uh, but uh, in the hotel, you you could hardly uh, uh, accuse it of being something catastrophic as it was. Mm-hmm. Did you have phone and television, uh, electrical? Sir? Well, uh, that that was a bad thing. Uh, the the power went out quickly. I had 
transistorized uh, gizmos uh, like gadgets I had my share of gadgetry. Of course, the towers that send to your gadget went out as well. <laughs> so uh, I just had dead weight sometimes. But uh, there were transistorized uh, messages coming here and there, but uh, major television and, and the cell phones and all went out. So the communication was uh, really poor. Uh, the towers must have all gone down. But we would hear, uh, we would, you'd hear from each other and you'd hear the buzz around. Of course, sometimes you don't know which rumor, because as I heard some rumors, I heard that I was over in, in the Superdome yeah. with the, uh, in the New Orleans uh, Convention Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard that I was over there stranded and lost and all. It was fun hearing myself. <laughs> <you know. laughs> but uh, of, co- uh, of course, it wasn't like that, even though I, I wouldn't. It, I wouldn't mind being wherever people were. But in the hotel, it felt pretty safe and, and good. The next morning, I must say, of course, in the hotel, the power went out, but they had generators. But you had to put water in the tub early because they know that was, wasn't going to be working. And I must say that that hotel did the very best they could with us. Uh, as soon as things begin to happen like that, they accommodated everyone they could as well as they possibly could. And they uh, they fed everyone and gave everyone drinking water. In fact, everything was free of charge for uh, after a while. When did the enormity of it hit you? Well, uh, the next day, let me say, uh, the next morning after the hurricane actually hit, I walked out on Canal Street, and there was just a little water about that much in the gutter. Yeah, I remember the footage from television, yeah. Yeah, just a little water, and and... In the middle of the street, where the streetcar passes, now the street has a little, uh, little rise there, so you could see all the streetcar tracks and all. So this was pretty good. This little water in the gutter is no threat mm-hmm. to anyone. However, I did notice that there was, in the cracks of the cement, there was water oozing through there, and that uh, I didn't know whether that was some pipe that had burst right in this area. But then we begin to hear rumors that, uh, like uh, for a mile away or so, that things were happening that uh, was causing water to come from places that they didn't know. And uh, didn't, we didn't even take that seriously yet. But as that day went on, and the next day, because the, by the power going out, we couldn't go back to our houses and, and uh, take our boards down as usual. So we were going to stay on at the hotel, uh, everyone there. Uh, but uh, we were getting to hear about things were happening, that water was rising in certain areas that uh, it, didn't, uh, it didn't make sense to where we were. And then the next day, we heard that the breach of the levees. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, the worst of it all began to happen, the, breaches of the, the breach of the levee mm-hmm. here and there. Now, Jeff, from your point of view, did you hear that, did, in, in hearing the storm being reported, was there a point at which you said the levees are going to breach, or did you hear that they had breached? Well, this was the, mm-hmm. this was the since the storm seemed to miss mm-hmm. and just, just go to the east of town, we, and 
knowing that the worst place of a hurricane is the northwest side, which is where, where all the, the storm comes ashore, the big storm surge, we thought, well, the Mississippi Gulf Coast must be in terrible shape, and, and which it was. I mean, that was a surge 30 feet tall in some places, so it was extraordinary. And we just assumed New Orleans was going to be fine. Little did we... But then when you sat down and talked to your colleagues, they say, well, you know, it might swing back around across Lake Pontchartrain. It might move up Mr. Go, the canal that connects, connects there. But we thought it was fine. And in fact, I think our, our, I was I'm, I'm curious, where did you get most of your information yeah. about what was happening? Because this is one of the big things that happens in natural disasters is communication turns out to be the most important thing. Who did you find out things from and how much of it was true? Well, uh, much of what I found out was to accept uh, this uh, compound me, that one of me was here and one of me was there. Uh, That wasn't true. But uh, uh, for a while, like I said, we were hearing things on uh, wireless uh, radios, things like that. And then that went out. But we would hear it from someone who had been somewhere and come back and in the hotel who, who seemed like they knew what they were speaking of and they had heard something somewhere else, and the people who were coming down the street, they had just come from the center, and they told some stories. So we heard it like that. It was very primitive, but much of it was really uh, valid. That turned out to be yeah. true. Now, that's one of the big challenges in these is communicating to people, especially with that many people trapped, uh, unable to evacuate at that time. Let me do say, however, uh, hardwire phones like uh, in neighborhoods, like on the corner, wherever, yeah. wherever Superman used to run in, <laughs> uh, those phones were working. So, Amazing. Uh, uh, of course, they were hard to get to because uh, everyone wanted to use a phone at some point. So there was a. I got a couple of messages from phones like that. Uh, that someone was trying to get in touch with me from out of town and all. Uh, and someone happened to answer the phone and knew where I was and came got me to go and answer the phone. So the hardwire phones uh, on neighborhood corners and all were working. Were you aware of what was going on on the human scale elsewhere in the city about the conditions at the convention center? Now, I'm thinking Canal and Bourbon, that's, that's walking distance normally oh, yes. to the convention yeah. center. It's a good walk to the Superdome, but it, it could be done. Yes. How aware were you of conditions elsewhere in the city? We heard lots of things about what was going on at the Superdome. And for, uh, every now and then, uh, like on the little radio, on the little television that were wireless, not hardwired, uh, it might come on and you might see a little bit for a moment and you see all these people in the dome, with, as it turned out to be, and then it would go back off so you couldn't stay with it very long. But there were some folk who would travel back and forth one way or another and, and bring news back what was going on and even name names that you knew, uh, those of us who's been there mm-hmm. and know lots of different folk. So we would get information that way and we kind of knew what was going on and, and we'd get names in particular. But just from, uh, like I said, from mouth to mouth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was there a law enforcement presence uh, where I was? Where you were? Uh, in the hotel, not enough to... Yes, there was uh, a couple of uh, people who worked like uh, watchmen, mm-hmm. but not the police force. Mm-hmm. No, that wasn't in the hotel where I was. Uh, there was uh, 
many rumors about that as well. It was kind of strange. Uh, I did, uh, I remember walking, the next day uh, when I was able to leave the hotel and walk around the corner to to the next street, over Rawl Street, there was a Walgreens over there. And I saw people breaking into uh, Walgreens. And uh, after uh, a few moments later, uh, police actually came up mm-hmm. and uh, began to try and uh, disperse that. Uh, so there was some police, but not, I didn't see a lot of police presence, mm-hmm. no. But uh, where we were, uh, uh, it wasn't uh, in the hotel. There was nothing that uh, was suffered because of the lack of police. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, when did you make the decision to leave? Four days afterwards, uh, when the water began to rise and, and, uh, and we got to know that it would not be business as usual and heard about the, the levers and... Uh, the various spots, because it didn't break in yeah. one place. It, 50. You know. uh, when I found that uh, my daughter and my son had been trying to reach me, because when when, if the weatherman say, look, the weather looks like they're in the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The weather looks like it's going to be all right. Oh, they would have to turn around and go. <laughs> but, uh, so they evacuated immediately, but uh, my son and daughter was trying to reach me, and and they were able to uh, call some other friends of mine in other places, one being Josh Feigenbaum in New York, who migrates between the Manhattan and the Hamptons, mm-hmm. where he, uh, he spends uh, certain times in the, of the year, go mm-hmm. get one of them houses on the ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had done that at other times as well, so that was a familiar place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he finally was able to reach me, and uh, said, since you got to migrate somewhere, you should come to New York. The, we are business partners. You have business to, here that uh, could be done, and you have to be someplace. And uh, bec- uh, let me say, the fourth day, when, we finally, uh, when I finally decided that I would have to leave, we went out the back of the... Gesundheit. We, <laughs> we went out the back of the hotel, and there was about that much water in the gutter on Iberville Street, which is the first street off of Canal into the quarter. However, into the middle of the street, there's always a little arch. So could wade through a little above the anchor water and then get in the middle of the street, and I walked around to Royal Street to the Monteleon Hotel. And stayed there. And it's a very nice hotel. (laughs) It's a very nice hotel. And there, (laughs) there you could purchase tickets to get a bus to Houston, uh, and I guess to wherever buses would go. The, and there was a long line of people, uh, like for a block and a half, on Royal Street outside, uh, with their whatever they could uh, hold on to, for as their packages or whatever. And everyone was waiting out there, and you could go into the counter and purchase a ticket. So I went in to uh, Monteleon and purchased a ticket as well. And uh, I came out to the to the street and would wait. And it was, it was very, very interesting. It was catastrophic, but wonderful. I saw so many interesting things there. I, I, I saw people who would never meet each other and who would definitely not speak to each other, helping each other. Uh, like I saw this 
real hoodlum looking big dude who I wouldn't, I'd be standing off. Mm-hmm. He was helping a little old frail lady who looked like he would have robbed her yesterday. Mm-hmm. But uh, helping this little old lady who he had no idea who she was, totally different race and all. And, and it was so wonderful to see. And I saw this, uh, it was a, a, some uh, little girls line, uh, lined up and their parents there, little black girls, and there was this uh, white lady uh, braiding hair. And she would braid this lady, this girl's hair, and she'd go and say, okay, next, come on over here. And she'd braid her hair, and the next one. And these kind of things, I saw that a lot. And it just, it was quite heartwarming, to be perfectly frank. Uh, However, those buses that they were all waiting for, one of the guys who was patrolling in the middle of the street, walking up and down, there's always some people who kind of know what's going on. He called me out to the middle of the street and because we had been there like seven, maybe six or seven hours by then. And it was getting uh, getting dark. And he said, the buses that you all are waiting for, Alan, they're not coming. They've been uh, taken over by the authorities. And they they sent all the buses, the big Greyhound-type mm-hmm. buses, over to to the center and to the dorm to see what they could do about those people. So... But he told me, well, but I have a school bus around on, around on Bienville, which is the next street over, that will be going to Baton Rouge and Lafayette. Well, there's an airport in Baton Rouge mm-hmm. and, uh, and Lafayette as well. But he said, if you would like, you can come on and go with us. And I did indeed, and they, they found a roundabout way to go out of town because there were certain routes you couldn't take at that time because of the water. But the bus driver knew a roundabout way to go, and I took that bus to uh, Baton Rouge and spent the night in the airport. And at 5.55 a.m., I took uh, a plane to Manhattan and uh, spent a, a, a couple of days there and then went out to the Hamptons. One of the things, I think one of the reasons I was invited to moderate this panel is I've done a lot of research on rumors and race. And so I was beginning to to get phone calls very soon after the enormity of the storm began to hit from reporters. And I was also listening to the news report, knowing the way hearsay works and knowing what kinds of things get repeated. And so... um, Listening, listening with a, a, a critical, not critical in a negative ear, but critical in a, um, with, a, with suspicion to the kinds of things that, that were being reported and was asked to, in a couple of instances, predict what kind of hearsay would develop. And knowing what I did about the Mississippi flood of 1927, where the water was intentionally directed into the low-income, the black neighborhoods, and that, was, that is documentable with the flood of, of 1927. When I heard about the levees at the Lower Ninth Ward, I said, there is going to be beliefs that this was done intentionally. Uh, and sh- sort of the first round of reporters to get in touch with me would say, People are saying that this was this happened intentionally, that these levees were flooded either to make more room for 
gambling interest or as a mechanism of genocide or um, a variety of reasons, which is what makes it, 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 it fit within that room of rumor and legend. Um, I'm wondering if you heard these kinds of um, uh, explanations for the devastation that happened in the Lower Ninth. Yes, I heard that and much more. Uh, however, I guess uh, many times, uh, I guess what bleeds leads mm -hmm. with the news. Uh, Katrina was not discriminating against anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, they just didn't get around to show all of these uh, $800,000 houses look like a bum hit them. And uh, in, in, in those neighborhoods, there were oak trees, looked like they were 300 years old, just had turned over and all the roots showing. And, uh, uh, and uh, all kinds of uh, cars with uh, this big gray mass of them, uh, Cadillacs and all, and, and like on, around Canal Boulevard, which is one of the very, very nice neighborhoods, it, it was and West End Boulevard, these are just great houses. Uh, and it doesn't mean that everyone who lives in, who don't live in the Ninth Ward is rich. Uh, some of them live from paycheck to paycheck, too. It's just that their paychecks are larger. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I didn't take any of that to heart. Uh, I guess that is possible in some case, but as the way I saw it, I didn't take any of that to heart. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know at a time like this, it weakens people to, and uh, we grab at whatever we can. If, uh, I never found that really necessary. But, and not even just living in denial. The way I looked around at the city and saw what was going on, it just, like on Bayou St. John, if you're familiar with the area, they, they are like uh, two and three and four million dollar houses out there. They're gutted now. I mean, they're all gutted in the mildew everywhere. And uh, it just, uh, it, it got all over the place. I'll tell you what we learned and what many builders and all knew. The earliest develops, developers of New Orleans knew where to build. I think we got cocky later on as history <laughs> took place. But those places like the French Quarter didn't get didn't get really treated badly by the storm in the Garden District, where those beautiful mansions and all are. Uh, that ground is a little bit higher, and they didn't get any, they didn't suffer at all. Some of them got some roof damage, and I guess some of them, I guess, got some windows blown out. But uh, even, uh, but for as rising water, those places didn't get hurt. In the French Quarter, uh, aside from the electricity going out, uh, and a couple of signs going down, small signs at that, they didn't get damaged very badly. And it's because of uh, geographically where they were located. Uh, and New Orleans is very, very flat, very flat, uh, as far as our general eye can see. But I guess you would know even better than I that there's some places that's a little, the closer you get to the river, the better off you are. That sounds backwards, I guess. But... Uh, we learned that that is the case. Uh, but as far as the rumors about uh, whether it was man-made, uh, at some time in history, maybe that did happen. But if one was to ask me, do I feel that that happened with Katrina, I would definitely say no. Yeah, I went about a, 
um, exactly one year later to the anniversary, um, um, the three days before and after the anniversary of, of Katrina, and did a lot of interviewing about this and, and participated in a lot of events. And I interviewed some um, graduate students from Southern University in Baton Rouge, um, including a young um, African-American woman who had been um, in Baton Rouge, but the rest of her family in New Orleans for Katrina. And her father worked for the Army Corps of Engineers. And her mother didn't want to leave until dad came home. Dad was in a meeting in Ohio or something like that. And he got on the phone and he said, you get out of there. Get, get, get out now. I'll meet you in Baton Rouge. And she was one of those people who had you know, lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Baton Rouge and had like nine family members living with her for two or three months until you know, alternative housing could be found. And she talked about the, the, the rumor about the intentional breach of the levees by the Army Corps. That suggests the fact that that, that means that people are hearing that Army Corps of Engineers and thinking white and not realizing that her father and their black employees of the Army Corps of Engineers who would have not intentionally breached the levy and so forth. It's one of the more poignant of the, of the interviews that I did uh, in the aftermath of the storm. Jeff, can you comment on what he just said about the, what parts of New Orleans are right. safer? Uh, I, or, or... It, it, I think we call it engineering hubris. Uh, through time, we, the people who, 400 years of, of colonization in New Orleans, it all started on the edge of the river, where the river built the natural levee, that when it would overflow with all that sediment, the coarse sediment would drop out right next to the river, and that's how you built the large sandy areas next to the river, and of course, that's where you live, because you stay dry when you're on that natural levee, except in the really high floods. And then we grew to the north in uh, New Orleans, and as you move north in New Orleans, your elevation gets lower and lower and lower until you're in the Ninth Ward, and it's below sea level in some parts there. So the, New Orleans, I, I, I just, to hear you say it grew too big for its britches, it, 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 did, it outgrew itself and its ability to protect itself. I also want to say, remind you that the levees of New Orleans failed in more than 50 places. There were more than 50 structural failures in those levees. It was as equal an opportunity failure as you could possibly imagine. And that is the, the incompetence behind the design and engineering of it was spread equally for everyone, uh, except those who happen to live on high ground. Uh, and particularly in the French Quarter, it was the best, best place to be because it's the highest elevation. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if after you got to New York and after you um, went, went out to the Hamptons, you must have been watching the coverage of the storm um, on television, seeing it in the newspapers. It, it really dominated for, for several weeks. Did it feel that what was being described by the journalist was the storm that you'd lived through with, with the city that you were from? Well, yes, yes. Uh, they covered uh, one area more than others, and I guess because there was more that they could see, and uh, if you were setting it up, that's the way you'd set it up to make it look. Uh, and it was very real. People really suffered terribly. And uh, like the people you saw on the high-rise walking and all, that really, really happened. Uh, there was much of that, many deaths and all. So yes, I, I uh, because when it was sure areas, I, I I knew that area and I, I knew knew what was generally going on. So yes, I I thought the the news reported 
what was there. They reported the very worst, uh, which I think is a good idea, actually, because uh, uh, if, if there is a worst, show the worst of what can happen. Uh, I w- if there was anything I, I thought could have been handled a little, a little better and would have been more informative is to show a, a wider variety uh, of uh, situations than just uh, show the one over and over and over again. There was so much going on, uh, but they, they seemed to sh- uh, focus on one area. And there was too many other people who, feel who were suffering who who, would, who felt that, uh, what about me? Yeah. What about me? I'm, uh, uh, very, very human. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But uh, I kind of understand that uh, the concept of if it bleeds, it leads. So. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, I, what, what I saw on the news, I, I thought it was, uh, they did a, a good job of, of keeping it uh, around as long as they could. And it was very realistic to me, and I knew the areas they were speaking of, and it was really, really like that. What happened to your home? It's not there anymore. But uh, it was, uh, at one point, it had about nine feet of water, and then it settled at six. Uh, so when I, when I say settled at six, because if you go in your house, you could see that at one point, the line is up here, and then the thickest line is here. There's maybe one or two lines, and then the third one is where it settled and stayed the longest. And there was nothing up there anyway, so it stayed down here where it could just wipe out everything. But uh, my home didn't make it at all, and it was just extremely interesting because I hadn't seen such a thing before uh, because you didn't, didn't have a tidal wave in your house. You had rising water. However, a refrigerator full of whatever refrigerators had might be in the next room, lying down. And uh, everything was where it shouldn't be. Uh, heavy things, light things. And, uh, and I mentioned refrigerator because that's the first thing I couldn't help but notice. Why would the refrigerator be in the next room? Mm-hmm. And, of course, small things like tables and chairs were totally out of the way. Tables, uh, very hefty tables were broken up as if there was more movement than you would expect in the house. It would have been good to set a camera in there and see it all. But uh, it was uh, really dramatic. And, of course, after all, and my, my Steinway, it just was a big gray mass, a big gray mass. You couldn't tell the white key from the black key, or you couldn't tell where the keys were divided. It's just a gray, long mass. Uh, and, uh, and, in fact, I tried to press them down, and it wouldn't go down, so uh, it was dead, and my synthesizers and everything else that I worked with daily were all this big gray mass, and everything was just a big gray mass, and uh, uh, thick goo on the, on the floors everywhere, and again, everything where it shouldn't be. Uh, that's how. How long did you wait before going back? Uh, about three weeks. About three weeks. Because at first it was some sort of martial law that they didn't mm-hmm. want people around, and understandably so, because it invites other kinds of problems, health problems as well as uh, some other human problems. So it was about three weeks when I went in there and I saw it, and it, it just looked so final till I, I made up my mind immediately. You, 
there was once you were and now you're not. So I didn't, uh, I didn't lament over, over it. Right away I accepted that as a fact and thought that uh, uh, you have served me well to this point. Thank you. Where do you live now? Back in New Orleans, I'm, I'm still trying to get my house in order because uh, uh, another couple of weeks after that, I, I, uh, because I went back, to, I was staying in New York, and we, we were doing lots of benefits, Elvis Costello and myself and many others, uh, Lindy Kravitz, uh, just loads of folk all around the world said yes. So we did many benefits. So I was spending a lot of time in New York, and, but I was missing New Orleans. So about a month and a half later, I went and I, I went to a, a place a little removed outside of town, and I, I bought a place out of panic. I just <laughs> bought pretty. That's pretty. I want that. Uh, whether I could pay for it or not, I wasn't sure. But uh, uh, I did, but it was a mistake because I'm one who liked to be right in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, uh, I, I, I left and went back to New York and a couple of weeks later I went back and I went in that house and walked around and, and noticed that I wasn't home. So I put it back on the market and it took like a year or so to sell it. So I stayed in New York all of that time going in, in and out of New Orleans, uh, trying to decide what to do, shopping for a place to live or seeing whether my previous place was was repairable mm-hmm. and and uh, various things but it was in such bad shape and the whole neighborhood of course cuz uh, by that time well a couple of months later we had a trail on every lawn around there and people some people were trying to get that place back together which is still going on and uh i finally decided uh much later to go on and just tear my, flatten my house and maybe build in the same place or keep shopping around. And um, I have a, a great place that I'm staying right now in a, in, a, in a friend's place, actually. And I'm still getting my living quarters in order. Uh, not that house, because I finally had it flattened. There's nothing but dirt there now. But uh, I'm just glad to be back in New Orleans uh, under any circumstance. One of the things that's so impressive is the way in which people have come together around the community of musicians and the, the musical roots that we all take for granted that are so embedded in, in New Orleans culture. Um, you've been such a big part of that, um, it seems like, from, from the very first days after when you could have dwelled on what you lost yourself but you seem to focus more on your fellow musicians and that community. I'd love to hear your comments about that. Oh, yes. Well, focus on my fellow musicians and, and people, period, uh, because we, we were all in this together. Uh, let me do add, however, because uh, whenever I think of Katrina, uh, I think of the curse and the blessings. And the way I see it, that the blessing has been much larger than on the scale than the curse. As uh, far as musicians, uh, right after Katrina, when everyone had to evacuate and all, there were more New Orleans musicians working than ever before. <laughs> <laughs> they were everywhere. I mean, uh, and 
also another good thing about what happened by, by them being displaced here and there and in different cities, some folk who would who never thought they would go to New Orleans but had heard about it and all, now there's a piece of New Orleans plan down the street. So they could they were they became ambassadors, yeah. just about every musician. And not only those who were already in demand, but those who weren't uh, but normally local musicians were now national musicians, you might say, in a way. So it was quite a promotion for us. And and far as giving other cities a taste of New Orleans music mm-hmm. uh, in that way was, I consider, a blessing in a way uh, uh, for the musician and for those people. Because some folk now that they've seen that, they want to go and get some more. So that was a... a a good thing about it as well. Uh, I think I may have deviated from your point a little bit. Wouldn't no, I think that's fine. I think that um, it's probably a good opportunity. That's a nice note in which to open up the questions to the audience. Does anyone uh, want to join in the conversation? Any questions out there? Oh, I guess some, because the biggest thing that has happened to New Orleans since Louis Armstrong is Katrina. Uh, so I, 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 was, I would assume, without saying I have some reason for really knowing that uh, when people think these days going to New Orleans, I'm sure Katrina must pop somewhere. Whether they had another gone visit a friend or, or something, Katrina has to be a part of that package now. So I guess that uh, that must be playing a part. As far as what they'll see when they get there, some people won't see anything be- uh, as far as the tragedy would happen because they go to the to the commercial New Orleans. And the commercial New Orleans is in great shape. You would never know anything happened. Bourbon Street is buzzing right now, uh, having a great time. And uh, Pat O'Brien's, you can get a hurricane and drink it down right away. (laughs) Uh, So there's a large part of New Orleans that uh, people who would go as a tourist, uh, for as what they would see, if they wouldn't make an effort to go out and see these areas of weather, or, or the residential areas, they wouldn't know. However, I do think anyone who would go to New Orleans at this time should take a ride. They sh- should go and see that. I mean, there's, there's no, when would you ever see that again? We hope not again. But I think that should be seen. For as the changes, and I, I understand some of that question because some folk used to ask right after Katrina, you think, New Orleans is going to look like a Disney world or something so far, and you wouldn't know what it is. I don't think that'll happen. I think New Orleans uh, has is a, has enough strong elements to hold its own. Uh, and maybe I just don't want to give Katrina that much credit. <laughs> but uh, there are some neighborhoods that I do know for my uh, for sure that used to be uh, used to have a certain look. Now, since they had to build all new houses, they certainly aren't building them the way they did in 1928. So there are some neighborhoods like that in the residential areas that I don't find uh, uh, unpleasant to the eye. And it doesn't look like uh, we lost a whole lot for that. Uh, So I think uh, the average person that comes to New Orleans, uh, if they don't make an effort to go around and see where the devastation is and was, and I say is prominently because there's a lot you can see right now that's in terrible shape, and I mean for miles. 
but many people will go to New Orleans and have a great time and never see that. You'd have to make an effort to do that. I hope I, come, I came somewhere near Anson. So would you stay again? If there was a six, mm-hmm. I would stay. You would stay again? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely. I'd stay with a 10. <laughs> Make them. Now, I'm not saying that I should have many followers, but, <laughs> but yes, I would stay. I would stay. That's great. Do you feel like you're no. taking a chance? No, no. I don't feel that at all. Maybe some do, but, and many people that I know don't feel that either. But I'm sure, uh, and I really can't speak for the multitude, but uh, many people I know who, who would hang in there. But like I say, my, my son over there and my, and my daughter, uh, when the weather band comes on, the, uh, <laughs> she grabs a purse, I think. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, I've heard uh, music and songwriting. <laughs> Yes, uh, and, and I, I left out the word good because I'm not sure what to do with that. Uh, <laughs> okay, no, but uh, I, since I like it all, it's wonderful to me. Uh, yes, uh, especially right afterwards, there was just floods of people with, uh, with the Katrina song, of course, and something about New Orleans. Cyril Neville and I collaborated on, on a song called Box of Pictures, about a lady who went to a house and saw, after all that devastation, everything was lost except over in the corner, she found a box of pictures, photographs. And she began to look through that and see her life. Uh, so that's one of them. But yes, there's been a lot. And I wrote a couple of her earlier pieces right afterwards uh, encouraging folk to come home, come back home. Uh, Katrina was, but we are. Uh, and uh, actually, I didn't write a whole lot about Katrina because I didn't want to make Katrina that popular uh, to last that long. But uh, yes, there's been a lot, lot of uh, songs uh, having to do with Katrina. I must say, Elvis Costello has taken, he took New Orleans tragedy uh, more seriously than most people I know, even in New Orleans. I mean, he, he felt personally attacked. I mean, he... He really, with a vengeance, and he has really been a trooper for us, getting the word out there and, and, and most sincere about it all. And when we decided to collaborate and, and record together, he, he had told me, Alan, I've been wanting to do an Alan Toussaint songbook, and now here you are and we're here in the same place. Let's do something together. And uh, he, he chose lots, uh, several songs of mine from the past that were totally applicable to the situation that seem as some seem as if they could have been written now and about Katrina, such as Freedom for the Stallion and uh, Who's Going to Help Brother Get Further, things like that. Uh, many, many songs like that. I, I mean, we did lots of songs, so, and he chose many of them, uh, which I was glad to see because we accomplished the mission without uh, uh, writing uh, from the total inspiration uh, at the moment of Katrina. So he was able to breathe new life into things. And the title of the CD is called The River in Reverse. Now, that is a direct uh, message about Katrina. What can, what can, the whole, I still call them albums. Our album is not about doom and gloom. It always has a promise of of, uh, doing things better. 
river in reverse is how, what can we do to turn this river in reverse? Because the way it's running now, man to man and mankind to mankind, uh, maybe some things could be changed. And uh, one of the things we, we did call Ascension Day was inspired because one of the uh, people who uh, we, uh, Elvis spoke with afterwards spoke about when he returned to New Orleans, he, did, he missed hearing birds. And that was really true. Uh, there's a, uh, sometimes we don't know what quiet is until it's quieter than it's ever been before. And to be around and not hear those, those normal sounds that you don't pay attention to, but something that keeps you involved in the society, when all that's really quiet, it's a kind of eerie feeling. And for writers, that's, of course, uh, highly inspiring. So the, the piece Ascension Day kind of sort of covers that. And so it's things like that. But uh, I feel very positive about our future. Very, very, and excited about it. Because we have to flex some muscles we didn't know we had. And, and, and that's a good thing. And every now and then in life, something like this happens. And if it was going to happen to my beloved city of New Orleans, I'm glad I was there. Well, I think that that's a good note to end on. And I hope we'll see you all tomorrow night, next door in Jackson Hall, for the concert. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.